something I think about is is the sustainability of our crop production and the idea of kind of becoming more um, uh, more efficient and intensified on our best acres. So if if uh, if we can optimize our production on our most productive acres, um, then part to me part of our sustainability vision can be returning some of those more marginal acres to other uses. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. DSM and AB Vista. All right, welcome to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Gail Carpenter. I'm with Iowa State uh, University Extension and Outreach, the dairy, uh, state dairy specialist for the state of Iowa. And I'm joined today by Joe Lawrence from Cornell University. Uh, Joe serves as the Dairy Forage System Specialist with the Cornell Pro Dairy Team. He has been involved in the Northeast Dairy, Northeast dairy industry his entire life, growing up on a farm in Northern New York and working as an extension ed- educator and private sector crop advisor prior to his current role. His work has always had a strong focus on a whole farm approach to forage management by integrating growing, harvesting, and storage of forage crops to assure these feeds meet the goals of the farm. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you. Good to be here. Why don't we go ahead and start with a little bit of discussion. I'm curious, uh, we, we touched on it a little bit in your intro, but tell us how you got where you are today. Yeah, so... Um... So I, yeah, I guess going back far enough, I actually, to be honest, didn't have a lot of interest in agriculture growing up on the farm and originally went to college for engineering. And um, then I, you know, halfway through decided that uh, I really was interested in, in agriculture and, um, and thought at the time there might be some ways to uh, kind of connect uh the engineering with uh, nutrient management and a lot of the things going on around uh, concentrated animal feeding, CAFO operations and the requirements there. So I, I shifted gears and ended up with a master's from Cornell in, in nutrient management, um, worked on some nitrogen work uh, in corn and, and manure utilization. And then um then I landed at uh, Lewis County Cornell Cooperative Extension as a field crops educator. And when I got there, um, the, I had a colleague in, in, uh, who was our uh, dairy science educator, and there was a lot going on around that time around bunk management and feed management and kind of the recognition that, you know, some agronomists, you know, they like to get the seed in the ground, make sure all the weeds were killed, and then you know, then their job was kind of over. And then on the other end, the nutritionists were picking a sample of feed out of the silo and, and saying, all right, what do, you know, I, I have this uh, feed, what am I going to do with it? And so I really became very interested in this, this in-between of, 
you know, getting a quality feed out of the field and and to the cow and and trying to integrate that process. So it it was kind of something that was needed at the time in the area I was working with and something that just really fascinated me. So from there I kinda um you know began more focus in on that area. So so I joke that I you know I really don't have any background in animal nutrition and the, the cow is sometimes a little bit of a black box to me, but but I've dealt with everything coming out the back end and going in the front end. So yeah, I love that idea of the farm and the cow as a system, right? We all tend to kind of, especially if you've been in academia for a while and you pursued higher education and grad school, you know, you got a master's or a PhD or, or whatever else. As you as you get farther in your education, you kind of get narrower in your focus. And so I think it's a I think it's a mistake a lot of times when we have people that are just kind of in their own little silos, so to speak, around the farm and and um, the those people that can kind of speak the multiple different languages, so to speak, and, and talk to different folks and, and code switch like that, talking to different people on farm. I think that's so important um, when it comes to nutrition in particular, but but the farm in general. So there's a balancing act between being a jack of all trades and a master of none, and then yeah. maybe, but, but maybe being too focused in, in yeah. a certain area. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. As long as there's somebody around, I guess, who's the master. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the trick part of the time is just finding somebody who knows what they're talking about, right? <laughs> well, I we were chatting before we started recording here today, uh, and we put up our corn silage here in central Iowa a couple weeks ago now. Um, you guys are still going in the state of New York, right? So um, what's the what's the corn silage crop looking like this year? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, every year is kind of diverse and, and, uh, you know, the state gets some diverse weather systems, but this year seems to be an extreme. Um, the western part of the state where we have a lot of corn production, both for silage and grain, experience some fairly significant drought conditions throughout the year. And so, um, that crop was definitely stressed by the drought and, and harvest for corn silage started earlier. Um, the end of August for in a lot of cases for for Western New York, um, and we're we're actually seeing where um, we had some rain in August, so we had decent year development. So overall yields are going to be lower because of the earlier season drought stress, um, and some corn uh, really uh, had drought even into August. But fortunately, in other areas where there's a lot of production. We're at least looking at a crop that looks like it'll have decent quality, just yields will be down. Um, we move east in the state. We had more um, uh, north and east. We had a little more consistent rainfall, and that crop is just starting to come off now. Um, and uh, it's actually been kind of slow to dry down. Um, we had decent growing degree days this summer, so we thought we'd get a, a little earlier harvest. But as we've gotten to, into September, it's been a little slow. I think a lot of people are getting pretty anxious um, as we start to get some more fall rains um, to get the crop out of the field. Um, and then moving east more, the drought kind of came back in. And in the far eastern New York and into a lot of New England states, they actually had a even worse drought conditions than we saw 
in Western New York. And so unfortunately there, there was some um, very compromised corn. And I think there's going to be some real inventory challenges in, in those areas. Yeah, we're seeing, uh, if you went up to Northwest Iowa versus Northeast Iowa this summer out here, it was two very different um, weather patterns that we were looking at. So yeah, it's a uh, it's we we've, we've kind of experienced some some different patterns here as well. So, uh, so you've got you've got folks in New York dealing with a whole bunch of different uh, different issues, and in the whole Northeast, I guess. And and like I said, that's probably true around the country. Um, what what do folks need to be considering when they're looking at feeding this year's corn crop silage? Well, I think you know th- some things that. Um come to mind to me as we look at the crop as a whole is, you know, we do tend to see better fiber digestibility with a lack of moisture. So that can be a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, We have a potentially more digestible crop, but we also may have less of it because yields were compromised. So balancing that um, inventory, your inventory needs with with the fact that what we generally consider a positive thing that we can probably have a higher inclusion rate of this forage in the, in the diet is I think going to be a real balancing act for a lot of um, the area this year. Um, and then, as I mentioned, you know, we did get some more timely rains in August, not everyone, but um, for a lot. So, so we ended up with a decent year development. So again, that puts us in a situation where we have maybe a smaller stock, a higher ear to stover ratio, a, a decent year on it. So potentially some fairly high digestible corn silage with a with a decent starch content. And so and that's something we actually like to talk a lot about is kind of using that preliminary information. You know, hopefully you're gonna let this crop cook out and not start feeding it till December or January. But um using these growing conditions and what we understand about the weather's impact on the crop to start saying now it's or now it's into September, but I'm going to, um, when I start feeding this, uh, corn silage in December or January, what, what, what's my diet going to look like? What do I maybe need to consider? Is it a time now to start contracting in some other feeds or looking at what my alternatives are? If I need to stretch, inventories or if I know my digestibilities aren't going to be quite what I want them to be. Um, you know, I think there's a good conversation to be had right now with the nutritionist and, and others on the farm of, of uh, strategizing for lining up what our ration is going to look like when we start feeding the new crop. So probably going to see a lot of low corn silage diets this year out there. Yeah, yeah, I think we're going to have to cut back. We had a pretty bumper crop last year, so compared compared to last year's diets, I think a lot of people just to stretch inventory will be needing to cut back a little bit. A lot of alfalfa out there. How's that looking this year? Yeah, we're actually interesting here in New York for a long time. Uh, you know, grass has been. Con- I should say is not considered a weed and has been considered an important part of our ration. So, so we have predominantly in New York, um, a survey done a few years ago showed over 80% of the alfalfa acres in New York are purposely uh, planted with a grass mix. And so we, 
we deal with these alfalfa grass mixes and that that helps us with some of our variability in soil types and drainage and also some weather um, you know we grass can make some tremendous feed but with a shallower root system isn't as drought tolerant where the alfalfa with its tap root um, has a little better drought tolerance so so we predominantly see alfalfa grass mixes um, and yields were were pretty good this year. I mean, again, these a few of these drought areas suffered in yields, but even there, it wasn't necessarily every cutting. So they may have had low yields in one cutting, but made up for it a little bit in, in the next. So I think we'll have a decent inventory of hay for the most part, haylage and, uh, and um, you know, we're, we're pretty in tune in the northeast of, of feeding this this alfalfa grass mix. It comes a little, little more challenge because uh, it can vary even from cutting to cutting. Like in a dry year, your first cutting could be 70% grass and then it turns off dry and your second cutting is, you know, 40% grass. So, with, you know, dealing, that's something, you know, our nutritionists are pretty in tune with is dealing with those changes from cutting to cutting. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a, uh... Even from bunk to bunk in a corn silage harvest, you're going to see variation there too. But yeah, definitely more when you're looking at your hay crops. And that actually brings me to uh, a question that I think about. Um, we get a lot of questions from our producers out here about some of these. Well, we've been getting more, I guess I should say, about uh, cover crops, alternative forages, um, you know, feeding cover crops, and some of these some of these forages that that aren't like your king and queen of forage, right? We think of corn silage as king and alfalfa as queen. Or vice versa. I'm actually, I think that it was, <laughs> I don't know why we gendered our forages, but, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so kind of thinking outside the box, I guess, of corn silage and haylage, uh, do you, and, and I think personally that's, uh, you know, there's, it can be a great way to stretch out inventory. Um, you know, especially if you have some heifers to feed, if you've got, uh, feed it to dry cows, low producing cows, do you have interest, uh, in the Northeast, uh, for alternative forages or is that something, um, that people are, are getting into a little bit more out there? It, it's a growing area for sure. Um, with, uh, some sorghum. So, you know, sorghum sedans been, you know, a common, um, for a while now, now straight sorghum as a silage crop. Um, some of these annual grass mixes that we're definitely seeing increased interest. And I think the main shift to me and, and the main shift in, in mindset that I think is important with these is when I first got started and was going through school and stuff, we often talked about these as emergency forages. So you have a wet spring, you can't get corn in the ground, you shift to a sorghum or a sorghum sedan grass set can be viably planted, you know, a month after we'd like to have our corn planted. Um, and, you know, that's fine and they can fit in those situations. But the challenge I always saw was as soon as you talk about it being an emergency forage, you've kind of, you've kind of already set it up to be, well, this is a last minute change I'm going to make. And it's something I'm going to fit in because what I had planned didn't work out. And, you know, I think that just sets limitations on the success right from the start. So to me, it's been important to start um, talking about this in terms of this is something I'm planning to integrate into my rotation. And, and, I, and I've had a conversation with my nutritionist, with 
my, you know, uh, herds person, other people on the farm of, of who I'm going to feed this crop to. Um, so I'm going to have X number of acres of this crop and who does it make sense to feed it to on the farm? And, and if we start planning ahead and integrating it that way, I think it's a lot more successful than when we treat it as an emergency forage and, um, cover crops are the same way to me. Um, you know, we obviously, and I'm a big fan of cover crops for, um, for conservation purposes. And then if we want to start talking, do we have the opportunity to double crop these? Again, I think we need to, we need to make it a whole system change. It can't be we're going to grow the same relative maturity corn silages and just try to shoehorn in this cover crop after corn silage harvest and hope we have enough season left in the fall to get it established. And um, then hope we have some time in the spring to, to maybe harvest a little bit of it. Um, we have, to, I think it has to be a, uh, a conscious decision to say, maybe I'm gonna ratchet back my relative maturities of my corn five or 10 days. So I know I have a better window in the fall to get the cover crop established. And I know I have a little more flexibility in the spring to harvest it. You know, I, I don't mean to ramble on, but you know, the other uh, the other thing that comes to mind on that is is uh, setting realistic expectations in the spring of the year, especially in northern climates. Have you as you move south, you probably have more flexibility, but in our northern climates, um, setting expectations. You have manure spreading to go happen. You have corn planting to do. You have um, you know first cutting to that you're looking at, and so. Um, you know, I've had some farms just flat out tell me, look, like I tried to harvest all these double crop acres and my crew was going to mutiny on me. Um, it was just too much. And, and you know, one farm um, said, you know, this was specific to their operation, but I thought it was an interesting rule of thumb is they, they cover crop 100% of their acres for conservation purposes, but they set a goal to to double crop and harvest 10 to 15% of those acres. Because when you, with, with manure spreading and all the, and first cutting and corn planting and all those other tasks, they felt that 10 to 15% of those acres were something that their crew could handle without the other tasks starting to suffer and be delayed. And it gave them a nice um, feed that they could put in a separate storage um, for a certain group of animals. So not that 10 to 15 percent is going to work for every farm, but I thought it was an interesting way to look at it um, to say if uh, this is what we can handle, we have a use for this forage on the farm and and we can do that without without compromising the quality or the timeliness of our other activities. Yeah, so much of it come down, comes down to people power, right? And um, not just what people physically can do, but, you know, in this age where we have uh, so many labor issues going on and it's hard to hang on to good people and it, if you can't, you have to be realistic about what you think folks can handle. So I like that. I hadn't really heard of that people doing that strategy before, but that's, uh, I like that. That resonates with me. So. I actually kind of want to bounce off that a little bit. Um, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit already. Um, but you know, uh, something that, that I really, uh, a drum I really beat is the importance of a whole team in communication and, um, making sure that, that you're not staying in your silos, like I was saying earlier. 
so so when you look at and I know you had, kind of have that in that focus on the whole farm system as well. When you're looking at farms that you work with that kind of take that whole farm or that team approach, what really um, sets apart the farms that are able to thrive with a system like that and really just have that teamwork kind of nailed down? What's the what's the secret sauce that, that you see with those folks? I think, you know, I'd start with just taking time for routine meetings. Um, you know, we and you know, frankly, you know, sometimes we set out with the best intentions and we've had, we've even had some state programs here in New York where there's been actual funding available, little mini grants available to farms to set up advisory teams. And, um, and they, you know, oftentimes they start out with the best intentions, but people get busy. We all do. Right. And then you end up having to cancel a monthly meeting because someone's schedule has something unexpected come up and then it, that that kind of snowballs from there sometimes and and you know I it's hard to blame people for that you, you see how busy schedules are but I think one thing that really sets the the successful ones apart is that um, ability to stick to that schedule and bring that group of both on farm and outside valued you know team members together on a on a regular basis to to keep that line of communication open and that kind of let the habit slip over time. What's, uh, what are the red flags that you see? Where, do, where does this tend to break down? What do the folks who, who can't make it work, what do they have in common, would you say? Not to, not, we don't want to like be too much of a downer on anybody, but. Yeah, no. Well, I think, you know, one thing is if you don't have a kind of someone that's willing to take a facilitator role and kind of hold people accountable on the team. And, and frankly, yeah, not to, you know to be too negative, but frankly, team members that maybe um, have their own interest, whether it's you know pushing a a certain crop into the rotation or pushing a certain philosophy onto the herd management that maybe just um, doesn't fit that operation and and it is an outlier from kind of where the rest of the team. I mean, ultimately, the the owner of the farm is the one where the buck stops with them, right? As terms of making the decision, but, but having, um, you know, a team that can compromise and recognize the best interest of the farm, even if it, even if it's outside of maybe some of their kind of core philosophies, I think is important. Well, in theory, that's kind of the space that we're supposed to stand in as extension personnel, right? Like we don't have, mm -hmm. in theory, I know everybody's kind of got their own pet ideas and pet projects, but we're supposed to be able to come in without um, our self, our own self-interest, right? And um, just kind of look out for the, for the producer in the industry. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't think that uh, here in Iowa, the extension folks are making as much money as the industry folks. So we're not in it to get rich, right? <laughs> no, and I but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that, you know, that's definitely part of my passion in this job and, and having some different, you know, I feel fortunate to have some different opportunities over my career. But um, for me personally, um, I really value that, um, the opportunity to kind of be that neutral resource. So Right, yeah. So speaking of extension, what questions have you been getting from your producers um, these past few months? What 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 are people in the Northeast kind of thinking about when they're looking at their 
their forage systems, nutrition. I don't, um, uh, random questions too. I get some random questions sometimes, but what have you been, any common themes that, that your producers are interested in hearing about? Yeah, well, it's it's probably the same that a lot of folks have heard around the country. I mean, it started off last spring with, you know, input cost. And, um, you know, I, I don't mean to say this flippantly, but, you know, I, it was kind of the conclusion a lot of times was if you have a, if you have a big space to cut and fertilizer and stuff like that, that means you've probably actually your, your previous program was overdoing it because, <laughs> um, you know, un, you know, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it with the cost of inputs is we, most of our farms have gotten to a point where they're pretty darn efficient. Um, yeah. So it's unfortunate that input costs were going up, but there wasn't a lot of room to cut without actually making, you know, sacrificing um, on on productivity. So, and then and then we kind of that rolled into a summer of some pretty uh, you know extreme weather um, across the state, and so uh, you know we got into some of those discussions about um, yield expectations. Uh, forage extending forages and trying to bolster inventories in other ways knowing that maybe a, a cutting of our hay or our corn silage wasn't what we had hoped for and um going off of that in terms of the the uh weather was also some pest management issues um you know we we uh that obviously kind of just adds insult to injury sometimes with the with the weather we had. Um, fortunately, you know, in the Midwest and other areas, the, the tar spot has been a huge um, talking point. Um, and unfortunately for where it's the biggest impacts are, um, fortunately for New York State, we have identified it here in the last two seasons. It is here in New York, but only we've only found it in one or two fields so far so it hasn't had a big impact on us yet but um in talking to our plant pathologist on campus it definitely just a lot of cell phone pictures and stuff of people is this tar spot fortunately most of the time it wasn't but a lot of uh, uh questions and concerns around kind of hypersensitive to some of those topics yeah you guys have looked out <laughs> yeah in that case then yeah so is, have you found, you know, when, when you get questions about input costs, have you found any consistently low-hanging fruit? I know dairy farmers, a lot of times they're already tightened their belts up quite a bit. Uh, you know, is there is there a first place that you kind of look when you get these questions about reducing your inputs? Uh, manure management. I mean, you know, I would say as an industry, we've um, really done a good job in, in um, improving manure management and really looking at it as a resource and a fertilizer instead of a waste product. But it was something that did um, kind of, uh, I did notice in some of the conversations this spring is, as well as we perceive ourselves doing as an industry, we did still find some areas where we could um, make sure we were better crediting and better distributing our manure. Um, to uh, offset some of some purchased fertilizer, so that that one definitely comes to mind. Um, and then another one is uh, tillage. Um, you know, I mean, you know, there's been uh, 
lots of discussion around no-till for several decades now, right? But and but you know, it's there's always been some failures with it, and that has people cautious. But you know, I think we have the technology today. We have the the end the, on the engineering side with our corn planters and stuff. Um, I like to say that you know, at this point, tillage is really just a crutch for a corn planter that's not set up properly. And when we looked at fuel cost, um, it's, uh, you know, saving those passes and, and short labor supply, as you mentioned, saving those passes over the field can be significant. Um, so that was another area. And I still think that takes planning. Um, I don't think you can just switch to, um, uh, no-till all in one season and, and have everything go perfectly. There's still going to be some growing pains and some transition and a few um, setbacks along the way. So I think it does have to be really a, a well-planned out transition, but I, but it's still a, an opportunity we see for sure. Yeah. Back to that whole farm approach, right? So what are you, what are you wanting? I mean, right now, some of them are in the middle of corn silage harvest, so that's what they're focused on. But, you know, once that's done and you're kind of looking ahead to planning for next year, um, what are you hoping that people are keeping in mind right now as they're looking at next year's forages? Yeah, well, you know, obviously, I think, you know, for some, it's hopefully we're not uh, super short on forages for this year. But we're uh, we, we know if we're going to make it through this coming feeding season, OK, that we're not going to have excess in inventory going into next summer. So I think, you know, thinking about your crop rotation, looking at options to um, rebuild inventory next year. Um, and then, you know, we, uh, our uh, seed industry is already out there with their early order discounts and selling seed and stuff, right? And I think, um, you know, this this relative maturity thing is a is of real interest to me. I, you know, there is data out there that shows that we can gain a bit of yield with longer season hybrids. But as we talk about integrating cover crops and the more erratic weather conditions we're having and, and whatnot, and, and gains made by the industry and genetics that are that a lot of our shorter season hybrids are much more robust than they maybe were 30 years ago or something. Um, combining all those factors in together, I, I challenge farms to really look at maybe what what their relative maturity selection is when they purchase seed. And if, if we can kind of, if there's room and some benefits to cutting back a, a little bit. And another part of that is, you know, maybe you do give up a half a ton of acre a yield by going, by really cutting back your relative maturity. But if we consider how quickly we could lose that half a ton in other ways with a less than ideal harvest. So if we're harvesting in the mud, and we have excess losses um, in the field, or if we have to harvest when it's too wet and we um, we don't get as good at dry matter yields coming out of the field and we have more issues with proper fermentation and preservation in the bunk, we can pretty quickly lose any of that extra yield potential we thought we were gonna get from a, a longer season crop. So, so I think that's a, a good talking point is uh, we're selecting hybrids for next season. Well, I want to switch gears here a little bit. Um, 
you do a little bit of volunteer work in your community and you've kind of gotten a little bit, uh, so some of your, your side projects have gotten a little bit away from the forage side um, and focus more on um, land use and rural land use and some of that balance between agriculture and renewable energy. And um, I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, it is kind of a, a place where some volunteer work I got involved in in my community overlapped with my professional um, career. And, and uh, it's been really interesting. I mean, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a very big advocate of renewable energy and, and the need for that transition in our system. But, um, but we have, you know, the predominant ones right now have been wind and solar. And where I happen to reside in the northern part of New York State, we have both going on and we've, we've had a really big push on solar recently um, with some state incentives that have come out. Um, and, and it, to me, it becomes a real balancing act. And, uh, you know, you made an interesting comment thinking about kind of milk per acre and, and milk production as we were talking before we started recording. And, and I think that, you know, to me, that's where all this intersects is, um, we're asking we're we're asking other of other uses of our land aside from you know in a state like New York support you know predominantly supporting a dairy cow right I mean that's our number one ag industry um, and then and I think we have to really be a little more um, conscious in our planning of that and thinking about how we build out infrastructure for things like solar with in balance with our dairy industry. And as we look at, you know, we talk so much about sustainability and, and, you know, coming something I think about is, is the sustainability of our crop production and the idea of kind of becoming more, um, uh, more efficient and intensified on our best acres. So if, if, uh, if we can optimize our production on our most productive acres, um, then part to me, part of our sustainability vision can be returning some of those more marginal acres to other uses um, instead of instead of fighting to grow corn on on soil types that just um, you know on average uh, underperform growing corn and um, so but the conflict that I've seen happening is is some of those most productive acres and best soil types are also the lowest hanging fruit and the most attractive for soil uh, for solar development. Um, so, and we see it threatening. We we tend to um, think in some cases about solar being an opportunity for a landowner to get a little extra revenue stream, but we also see it as a significant threat, especially for a farm that's leasing or renting um, significant acres of land in that the landowner they lease from may decide to lease to uh, terminate that lease and and uh, enter into a solar contract. And now if that farm has lost, say, 100 acres of land and it's prime soil types, and maybe they have to go find 150 acres of um, less productive land to to make up for the 100 acres they lost, um, that that has an impact on the farm as a business and it has an environmental impact in terms of the inputs that are needing to go into um, growing those extra acres 
to, to make up for the shortfall on these less productive soils. Um, so we've really been working to try to encourage some some shifts in these programs and incentives that really encourage the developers to put a priority on on utilizing marginal soil types and and not actively farmed land, um, and 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 proposing ideas um, for you know even like extra incentives, recognizing that for the developer it might cost them more to build the project on that marginal land, but it has a value to us in protecting. Our, our one of our biggest industries in the state, and we need to, um, you know, we maybe it's worthwhile to put some extra incentives in place to to offset maybe that higher cost of building out the solar project. That's so interesting to me. Um, and honestly, I hadn't thought about this very much until you uh, shot me an email last night with that article, um, which kind of just laid out what you what you just described here. Um, you know, when I, I did my undergrad at Michigan State and there was a there was a giant parking lot um, south of campus there where, where you, you the commuters would park. And I'd, I'd park there and I'd go up to class and I'd come back and, and my car would just be baked. It would be so hot in there. And you know what they did? They actually they took that huge parking lot and they put solar panels over it. Um, and so now it's you know, you can park in the shade and it's making solar at the same time. So I, I always thought that was that was kind of cool when you see you know that that's an, a big old open space where um, where yeah there's plenty of room and it's kind of a, a win win for the for the people that park there too um, but I guess you know I'm out in Iowa as I said and so you drive down the highway and you're seeing windmills everywhere right and um, they do creep me out a little bit at nighttime when they're all blinking at the same time it's uh, the red lights are a little bit creepy but um, but yeah, they're a part of our landscape out here now. Um, and so I guess I hadn't really given too much thought and maybe that's on me. I hadn't given too much thought to the solar, um, the solar footprint, but so, so what is it in New York state that, that caused that shift? Cause you said you have wind out there as well, right? So what caused that shift from, um, from the wind to the solar and, and these incentives that you're seeing for the solar? What was the, was there any particular reasoning behind that that you're aware of? You know, I, I don't know for sure. I mean, there's still interest in wind and there's still some new wind projects being developed. So it's not that we've totally shifted away from wind, but I mean, frankly, for one, we, we have had some resistance to wind, especially in some of our corridors where we might get it like off of in the water off of Long Island or on the shores of Lake Ontario, um, where we have the productive wind uh, consistency for wind towers. We've seen some some resistance from communities just in terms of aesthetics and stuff like that. Personally, I don't have a problem with them. I kind of like them, but but I, I you know I think I, they're prettier than telephone poles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but and we're but used that, to those. <laughs> But there was some resistance there. And I think, you know, solar, I don't pretend to be an expert on it, but they there's definitely been some um, advances in the technology that have made it more efficient. Um, so even in a state in New York that has a lot of cloudy days, um, you know, we can still um, be pretty efficient in, in um, developing it. And, and I just get the sense that maybe it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't, um, have you know because it, it can be sit a little bit more into the landscape and not stand out like the wind towers that maybe 
just public perception is a little different on it. But but yeah, I mean, I did a quick calculation for a wind farm here versus solar. And, you know, depending on what you read in the in the literature about solar, it could be anywhere from four to seven acres needed to produce one megawatt. And when I uh, got the information for a large wind farm we have here in New York State, and, and calculated the actual footprint of land that was taken out of agriculture, it was um, it was like 0.65 acres per megawatt versus that four to seven acres per megawatt. So we, you know, to me, the wind the wind towers can be much more integrated into uh, into farm fields, and we can continue to farm around them where um, solar is, you know, really taking that land out of production. Now, I know as soon as I say that, someone's going to say, well, we have some ideas around agrovoltaics of grazing sheep or um, even maybe doing some specialty crops under the panels. And I, I'm all for that. My challenge is, is just, can we scale that up? And is there a market for those sort of products? And, you know, with the with the current carbon neutral goals for New York State and their goals for what solar will contribute to that, we're talking it could be 40 plus thousand acres of land being put into solar to meet those goals. And that's a that's a lot of land, especially when our prime target is some of our best ag land, right? And um, and and I like your idea with the with the uh, parking lot, and we do have some incentive programs here to go on to brownfield location, old mill sites, or parking lots and stuff. But but the reality is that when we start talking about forty thousand acres, that's you know the idea of putting them in brownfields and over parking lots and on rooftops is it's not going to um, cut it's it. not going to yeah. put much of a dent in that forty thousand acres, right? So. <laughs> What I what really intrigues me about this topic is that I kind of have this pet 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 passion of mine is that whenever we're talking about sustainability issues, like there's all always give and take, but things are always presented as an easy fix, even though they very rarely are an easy fix. And I think this is, I mean, like I said, I've never really thought of this the specific example, but this seems like a really great example too of just like you know, this is what's going to be the larger life cycle impact, right, of, um, and I'm not saying solar panels are bad, of course, or, or anything like that, but, or that renewable energy is bad. I'm, I'm very pro-renewable energy. Um, but I think we have a tendency as human beings to kind of package those into like an, an easy fix, and it's almost never an easy fix, right? And even your comment about being carbon neutral, um, when a company goes carbon neutral or a state goes carbon neutral, how much of that is actual carbon neutrality versus just moving those that carbon to a different sector and it becomes somebody else's problem? And if we're trying to fight climate change and build a more sustainable world and feed a growing population, but also house a growing population, I think it's time for us to be a, a little bit more honest with ourselves about what the broader impacts are, right? So sorry to get off on a little bit of a tangent there, but <laughs> no, no, I, I I agree totally, and that's uh, yeah, that's where, and I think you know, it's I I just feel like we tend to rush these things a little bit because maybe we do perceive them as being a magic solution type of thing, and if you know, and the I I think that we have a land base in New York where 
solar makes more sense to be perfectly honest with you the the farm i grew up on was very heavy clay soils and and that's part of the reason it's no longer in dairy production um and honestly i i think my the dad the land my dad still owns would be well suited for solar and it's a better use of it than growing crops <laughs> um i don't know if he, he'd want to hear me say that but it <laughs> but um but uh but then we have other areas where um uh it it just really um you know it makes me shake my head to see these solar panels go in so i i think we have the acreage here to do it um and I think we can. It can be part of meeting our goals. It's just that we didn't take the time to um, to really plan out and incentivize the to target those acres where it it makes more sense and would have the the least impact on our on our agricultural system. But. So, what do you think this is going to look like twenty years from now? So, I mean, we're seeing. Uh, and we, we mentioned milk per acre, we're seeing a bigger push to get more efficient crops. So maybe we can grow the same amount of crops on a smaller land base and maybe use more of that um, arable land more effectively and, and have more marginal land available for, for these alternative energy sources. Do you think that's the way this is going, that those two goals are kind of uh, going to merge together and overall efficiency is going to be enhanced? Or how do you see this, how do you see this working out in the, in the medium term? I'd like to hope so. Um, you know, I think, you know, one thing with crop production is we we always tend to build in a little bit of inefficiency and, and, and crop a few more acres than maybe we need to in an ideal year, right? Because we know just like this year, every year is not ideal. So we can't, I, I think we're always going to have to have a little bit of a buffer and not necessarily get too tight on acres per cow because that in a droughty year or something that could really leave us behind. Right. But I think, you know, to me, I, I really, I really um, believe in the concept of trying to, um, you know, trying to really optimize target our, our most productive acres and really optimize production. Not to say that that's a free license to just spray whatever you want or do whatever you want. I think we still have to be, careful and and continue to follow the science there but i i really value that and i um you know i do think in places like new york and some of the diversity in soils we have that with a little bit of planning we can um have you know continue to improve that um efficiency and sustainability in in terms of producing forages on our best ground for our cows and, and that there is room for some of this more marginal land to be used in other ways. So what I'm hearing you say is that there's opportunity for more uh, more communication and better teamwork on the farm level and also at the state level. So it seems like that's maybe been, uh, we've kind of gone in a couple different directions, but maybe that's been the theme, that's uh, the, the thread line that's come the way through that uh, communication, teamwork, planning. Yeah, we I mean, you know, not to not to joke, but you know, we we know certainly that farmers will get very concerned about certain policies that come down through that have a direct impact on them. But then I sometimes I I feel like there's um and those get a lot of media, get a lot of attention, um different groups get involved, right? And that's that's all good stuff and trying to balance out the system but then some of the sometimes some of these topics i think 
they don't raise the radar of agriculture quite as quickly because on the surface, um, they uh, maybe don't seem like they'll have as big of an impact. And, and, and that actually, you know, kind of creates a snowball effect because then the policymakers don't hear the feedback from agriculture as quickly on the topic because it takes a little longer to realize that it's, um, you know, the impact it might have. It's time for Famous Three. Well, uh, we've been we've been chatting for a while now. Is there anything else? We, you know, we have three questions that we ask at the end of every podcast. Um, and I know you said you've listened to a couple of our podcasts already, so you probably thought about these in advance. It's not going to be a surprise to you. Um, but the first question is, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? <laughs> um, yeah, I did. I... I in the last uh, 12 hours here I, I tried to think a little <laughs> bit about you know I I'll be perfectly honest I, I'm I'm not a I've just never been one to sit down and read a lot of stuff that I didn't necessarily have to um and just just the way I am um and so I you know I mean I, not to say this just because of this format but I've really come to value podcast um and 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 partially because I do spend a fair amount of time crisscrossing New York state in a car. So, um, so they're very convenient for that. Um, but, and I, so I've begun to find, find some egg related ones that I, um, you know, I, I'm excited about this new one as well, but, um, you know, some other ones, there's a, there's a group out of the Midwest, uh, ag economic insights. It's actually a, a connection, a uh, loose connection. I had a former faculty member in ag economics at Cornell, um, Brent Gloy, who moved on to some other th- um, things, but um, he's involved in it. And they have they have some interesting podcast series, kind of looking at ag history and policy and impacts on ag, which kind of check all the boxes from for me as we kind you know talking about the solar policy stuff. Have uh, been really interesting. And then um, you know there's a couple university extension podcast one out of minnesota that i enjoy and um so i yeah and and they have a they have a a, um a crops one as well which has a um now i'm going to draw a blank on the name but there's a there's a crop related one they've had and so i i've uh, started utilizing those more and uh, both because it works in the car and versus sitting down at night with a book or a magazine and, and, uh, and there's some really good content there. Yeah. It's a great way to kind of take advantage of some of that windshield time. It's uh you know, keep your, keep, keep current and keep fresh. Yeah. The go, go for coffee shop. That's the crops one. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. I haven't, I'm not as familiar with that one. So I have to check it out. Uh, but Moose Room is one of my favorites. So I'm probably, I don't know if I'm supposed to promote other podcasts on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> Brad Hines does a really good job with that one. So, uh, and then our next question is going to be, what is your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? And it doesn't have to be a book either if you're not, if you're not a reader. <laughs> well, yeah. So yeah, books on uh, tape or now books on, uh, you know, your cell phone are handy in the yeah. car too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, I would, you know, I, so back to, you know, kind of, I guess my personality or whatever, and I, I like the news and I think it's, intre- I think it's valuable to stay up to date, um, even if you don't, you know, I mean, look at what's going on in the world now and how that's affecting agriculture. Um, 
So I, you know, I value staying up to date and I found, you know, some, I like some uh, quick podcast. NPR has a one called Up First is every morning. It's just a short 15 minutes kind of gives you the top stories for the day and stuff like that. Um, I did think of one book that I that I didn't read, I listened to recently, and it's actually a few years old, but it, it was called Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman. And it was it, it was about, um, it wasn't ag related, but it was about kind of technology and disruptors in the, the world and, and how things are changing at a pretty rapid pace and and how, you know, that impacts each of us and on an individual level in businesses. And so I've, I found that to be a really fascinating and thought-provoking book. I'll have to add that to my Goodreads. So our last question is, in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those that are not? Well, I think I'd tie that back into a few of our talking points today and even what I just uh, mentioned about staying current on the news, um, you know, we're we're in a system where everything has the potential to affect everything else, and um, you know it, it can be very easy to get tied into your day to day, whether whether you're running a farm or in agribusiness or in academia, can be very easy to get so focused on your day to day that um, uh, you lose sight of some things going on around you that are. Uh, um, could you know really have an impact on your on your business or your work? So, so I I see that as a a big um, thing. Whether it's um, staying current on you know the news or or picking up a book that you know that might you know kind of this theme of what are disruptors in our industry or in the global economy and stuff. And you know we these these startup companies kind of pride themselves in being disruptors right <laughs> and right, yeah. um so so to me that's uh i think where i see people's um paying attention to that stuff and 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 strategizing to set their business up for future success um versus getting lost in the day-to-day um makes a big difference i like that so where can folks find more resources that you have or where can they find you uh online yeah, I, I don't do a lot with social media. Um, maybe I should start more, but uh, but you know our yeah, it's overrated. Our, yeah, <laughs> our pro dairy uh, program at Cornell. So we're an extension and applied research program that's kind of affiliated with the Department of Animal Science at the university, and we have a web page uh, um, that if you just Google pro dairy Cornell, it'll come up, and that's where we try to. Um, archive all the resources from our team. So I have a number of extension related articles and some webinar recorded webinars and stuff there on, on my focus area. And our team kind of, you know, is a statewide team that covers some of the traditional extension. We have a couple of folks, myself included, working more on the cropping side. We have agricultural engineers, a veterinarian, uh, uh, dairy educator, uh, farm business management. Um, so, so we, you know, I, and, and we, you know, we're in New York, but I, I think our uh, materials are pretty, um, applicable. And so check out our, our website there. Yeah. I use extension, extension documents from all over the country. I think there's a lot of, uh, we talk about this a lot on our team, you know, extension's not really statewide anymore. It's 
there's state boundaries don't mean very much in a in a world where you can have webinars and podcasts and the internet so yeah yeah the only limitation on the crop side is just a common growing environment <laughs> yeah that's for sure yeah well i really appreciate this conversation uh that we had uh thank you so much for joining us and uh we'll hope to hope to talk to you again sometime yeah thank you very much it was fun yeah thank you